Hello Sword People and welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. As this episode is going out on December the 24th, may I wish everyone a very happy Christmas. Of course, we do not take Christmas here. We do not eat or drink or sleep. We simply labour in the dark to produce stuff for your Swordy amusement. No, that's not true at all. Actually, I'm taking pretty much a week off and having a very nice time. Thank you very much. So I hope you are also having a jolly good Christmas period. And of course, if you are not a Christmas sort of person, then whatever else you do at this time of year, I hope you're getting the very best out of it. Now, I should continue with the regular introduction, really, shouldn't I? This is your host, Dr Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training and bringing the joy of historical martial arts and Christmas presents into our modern lives. I'm here today with Pamela Muir, who is the founder of the Academy of Chivalric Martial Arts in Arlington, Virginia. She's been doing historical martial arts since about 2003, and I've met her at several events. And may I say, she can also tango pretty well. So, without further ado, Pamela, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you, Guy. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it's nice to see you. Um, so, whereabouts are you? I'm in Arlington, Virginia, which is a suburb of Washington, D.C., Okay, uh, which is why you have your school in Arlington because you live there. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's well yeah, but very sensible. Yeah, <laughs> suburb of Washington D.C. to give people kind of a more global. Yeah, planet. yeah. I, I've been to Washington D.C. and I, what I didn't quite realize when I went to Lord Baltimore's challenge. Actually, that's probably where I saw you last. I think you did. You I come and say hello. I went to the Baltimore one. Okay, but the Lord Baltimore's challenge was in 2019, and I was there and. It turned out that actually we were in Washington, D.C. I hadn't quite realized they were basically the same place. Like they've, they've, they've spread out to the point where they've all just kind of merged together in some kind of unholy melange of cities. <laughs> it's very strange. Um, okay, so um, tell us a bit about how you got started doing historical martial arts. Oh, okay. So I got started probably the same way most people do is that just the whole romance of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, who doesn't want a sword fight? Um, but more specifically, so in 2003, I was 40 years old at the time, had never done any kind of sports or anything before. Um, but I saw an advertisement for a fencing class. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, I'm, this will be the closest I'll ever get to learning how to use a real sword is to sign up for a sport fencing class. I started, um, had a lot of fun with it even did like one tournament um, with a whole bunch of really teens and 20 people where one of my fencing partners went, Children. We're 40! Um, (laughs) But with that, it was a lot of fun, but I was noticing across the room, there was this other really cool stuff going on where it's like, they're not using car antennas. They're using real swords. Actually, it wasn't. It was bambitionized, but you, you get the point. <laughs> so yeah. It's like that really looked what I wanted to do, um, you know, because I had always wanted to be Eowyn, you know, fight with the sword and wear the pretty dresses. And so I signed up for the historical fencing class and never looked back. I mean, it was just it was really it, it spoke to something deep 
deep within me. You know, it's kind of like campfires and, you know, something very yeah. primeval. Um, and so I, I, I studied, studied under Bill Grandy, and he just was amazingly encouraging for this basically unathletic woman who had never done a sport in but, her life. Yeah. Bill's, Bill's been on the show and yeah, he's been a friend of mine for a long time and yeah, he's in it for the right reasons. He he cares about whether you care about the art and whether you're into the swords. He doesn't care about how old you are or how fit you are or anything like that because, okay, there's nothing you can do about your age but you can always get fitter and you can always get stronger and, you know, everybody starts somewhere. Yeah, so. and I feel like 18 years later, yeah, I, I'm, I'm fitter than I was in my 30s. Excellent. Um, but... What also too really appealed to me, and, and so I guess probably the more interesting question is why I stuck with it rather than why yeah. I did it to begin with, okay. because everybody, sure. everybody wants to pick up a sword. Um, but it's the fencing language that okay. appeals to me. Um, I have a couple of master's degrees in mathematics, um, formal languages and logic. And to me, fencing is a context sensitive language. And a fencing bow okay. is a non-deterministic proof. And I, I just, it, to me, it's the language of fencing. One action follows another. And when you get it right, it's this beautiful, elegant, mathematical proof. And I mm. think that's what really appeals to me is it's, it's the fencing theory that I'm, that I engage uh, with, I guess. That, that's fascinating because I, I honestly, I didn't know that you were a mathematician. If, if I did know, I'd forgotten because, you know, my math is fairly rudimentary. Yeah, um, well, it's not something that, you know, comes up in casual conversation. Oh, by the way, um, you know, I <laughs> ABD, all but dissertation. I was okay. working on my dissertation when, um, this is going to sound really corny, but I was working on my dissertation, which was actually context-sensitive languages um, being whether or not they could be deterministic. Anyway, that's too, okay. too technically deep. But um, this is going to sound corny. It's 9-11 happened. Um, and at the time, I had a middle schooler and a kindergartner. And I had to decide where did I want to spend my time? Did I want to spend my time volunteering in their schools, helping in the library, helping kindergartners learn to read, going on field trips? Or did I want to work on this paper that at the time was only only about 10 mathematicians in the world were even interested? They're like, really? You want to do that? Um, so I, I kind of gave it up. Ah, okay. Well, that makes a lot of sense. It's, it's, at least you're not vulnerable to the sunk cost fallacy. Pardon? At least you're not vulnerable to the sunk costs fallacy. No. Yeah. Which is yeah. which is this is refreshing because I know lots of people who have I've met them in universities, for example, who are plodding away at something they don't really want to be doing or they don't think is actually important, but they've come this far, they might as well see it through, sort of thing. And yeah, there are times when that's not a bad approach, but it's it's interesting that you you basically give up the PhD for the point of you know, going and teaching in kindergartens. That's great. Yeah, as a well, parent, you know, as a parent, I think that's a brilliant important. decision. I mean, what was I going to, you know? Right. But okay, I do have to ask. Things that I was studying, it wasn't like I was studying how to cure cancer or something like that. I was basically playing with logic symbols. 
And yeah, and, and sometimes, okay, like when, for example, my my youngest was in the neonatal intensive care unit, uh, having, yeah, and it was all really horrible and bad. And I was like, why the bloody hell have I spent so much time studying swordsmanship when really I should have been studying paediatrics? Like, literally, anyone who has not spent their life studying paediatric medicine is completely useless and have, have wasted their life completely. And then I thought, well, hang on. We do need engineers and architects to build the hospitals for the paediatric neonates. Yeah. And, right? and so basically it all, it all came out, well, actually, you know what? It's not practical to have absolutely everyone being a paediatrician. But yeah, I, I did sort of think, you know, why on earth have I spent all this time swinging swords around when I could have been doing something useful? Um, but actually, my students tell me that it's it makes a big difference to their lives that they can study swordsmanship. So, you know, well, well, it's it, helping somebody. Yeah, well, even just meeting you at events, you know, that that's you. You've always certainly encouraged me that every, every time I've gone and I've taken your classes, I just always get something out of it. Well, thank you. Um, okay, so what is a context-sensitive language? Okay. Um, so a context-sensitive language, just trying to simplify it down, it is what it sounds like, is that okay. um, So a formal language is essentially a string of symbols, and a context-sensitive language, a symbol essentially only has meaning depending on the symbols around it. Okay. That, that makes sense to me as someone who did English at university, not maths. <laughs> okay. And, and I would say in... in, in like a word in English can change its meaning depending on what's happening before it, what's happening after it. And so even a, a sequence of sounds that it, you would spell it one way if it's, if it's in this context, and you spell it a different way if it's in that context. It's actually two completely different words. They just sound the same. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, so you know, sort, sort of along those lines, um, a non-context sensitive language. So if I'm, probably heard of the concept of a Turing machine. Of a what? A Turing, a Turing machine. machine. Yeah, 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 sure. Yeah. Like Alan, Alan Turing. So Right. So, so so that would be, you know, like a, a linear deterministic language is accepted by a Turing machine. Um, that you're just looking at the string of symbols as they are rather than the symbols around them. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, um, I, I, hey, and it's been twenty years since I've been working on this. So, no, no, no. But, but you said you said something a little, a little while ago about how fencing is a, um, a fencing bat is a non-deterministic something or other of a context-sensitive language. And I was like, hang on, hang on. This is I've never heard fencing described this way. So we're going to pick this apart and and dive in and, and see <laughs> okay. where we go. Okay. So, um, what's what is the deterministic aspect of that? Uh, okay, so a deterministic, um, so deterministic versus non-deterministic when you're talking yeah. formal languages is to, um, to figure out whether this string of symbols is part of the language. A deterministic, there is a single decision tree that okay. you know which it's going to go down. Now, it might branch, but at each point in the tree, you have only whatever options to go to. Okay. Um, 
So, you, you, you know, again, just think maybe your binary tree. Um, it might be more than binary, it might be tertiary, but the idea is that there is only a single branch that you can follow that will show that this string of symbols is part of that language. There's only one okay. branch that will give you the answer. Right. A non-deterministic one is that there may be multiple branches, but more than that, you don't know which branch you're going to go down when you start. Okay. But it could, you know, you don't know specifically which branch will give you the right answer, and you don't know which branch you're going to start on. And so, if you ah, have just an, like fencing. If you have an infinite amount of, you know, computer memory, time, you will eventually come to the right answer because you can follow this one down and that one down and this one down. But if you don't, then you really want to, you know, you'd prefer a language that's accepted by a deterministic machine. But fencing, I feel, you know, I'm sure context sensitive, that makes sense. It's that your action is not independent. It is definitely yeah. <clears throat> um, preceded or followed by your partner's action. So it's, it's very context sensitive. At the same time, it's you have an infinite number of possibilities that are going to lead maybe to the same conclusion. Um, to, to the same winner. So it, it's definitely non-deterministic that, okay. you know, that, that you have no way of knowing at the beginning of the bout if there is a branch that's going to lead to your desired outcome and what that branch could possibly be. Yeah, okay. That makes a lot of sense. And... The context sensitive thing is I'm, I'm thinking that if I, let's say I'm doing rapier, if I extend my arm and thrust in quarta, for instance, mm -hmm. that could be an attack, it could be a feint, it could be a counterattack, it could be a feint in time, it, to use more modern classical fantasy terminology. But there's lots of different things it could be, which is determined by what you're doing and when I do that action based on what came right before it. So if, it, if it's a riposte, it must have been preceded by a parry. If it is a counterattack, it must be done in the time of your attack. Right. And, and also, too, okay. again, it could be some, again, something that you've initiated, so not even mm -hmm. something that I've done, but something that you're getting trying to intend to get me to do as well, too, like like concept of a feint. Um, so it, it's there's no way that it's even just follow up on what I've done. Right. You know, that's, so it's very, again, I am using the word again too much time filler, but there, there's so many things. It, it's never an, it's never an action in isolation, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And, and the, the action takes its meaning from the things around it, not just the action itself. Yeah. Yeah. And when the bout comes down, it doesn't matter who wins, but when you get a string of actions where it just flows really beautifully, mm -hmm. it, it's just this, you know, it, it's a thing of beauty. It, it really is. It's just, it, it reminds me again, the satisfaction I would get from doing a mathematical proof is that look how right. this just flows one thing into the other and who wouldn't love this <laughs> right and and ideally you get that that definitive ending end point where 
the hit is made and it's clean and you know exactly how it got there. You couldn't have said five seconds ago whether it would arrive or not, but this is kind of it feels like it was inevitable after the fact because it was so purely done. Yeah. Huh. I th- I think there's a book there, or at least an article. Seriously, on on that mathematical language stuff as applied to. So you see the technical terms there. That mathematical language stuff as applied uh-huh. to fencing <laughs> theory. Um, huh. Okay. So what is that kind of study applied to? In is there some kind of um, so let's say let's say you'd finished the dissertation and what have you. What what would somebody take that information? Um, and do with it? Not much, actually. That, that's kind Not of much. the okay. problem. I mean, it's uh, really okay. a, more of a theoretical math, math concept than mm-hmm. actually applied because so much of it, is, um, it, it could be ba- it could be related to computer algorithms. But okay. unfortunately, most of it is the, you're making the assumption that you have unlimited memory and unlimited time. And that was, okay. you know, so that that's kind of, it's just, it's all theory. It's just people <laughs> playing with symbols and it's that's okay. fun, but there's not a lot of practical aspects. Um, on my dissertation proposal, I think I made up a bunch of stuff that said, oh, this could be applied to... Um, code breaking, code breaking is a good one. Algorithms, but yes. <laughs> it, it was, no. No. <laughs> it was all theory. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very much a theorize after the fact sort of person. So I, when I when I'm studying historical fencing, like from a source, I because usually the fencing theory is not sort of written out in any kind of really explicit way. I mean, in the later systems, it is up to a point, but even so, you have a kind of you know, by looking at the actions that the system includes and seeing what counts as what and how how the sequences are supposed to go, you can make all sorts of assumptions about the fencing theory that's kind of driving that. And I find it much easier to go from practical stuff to theory rather than from theory to practical stuff. So I, I sort of rationalise the theory after the fact. Um, I'm, I'm guessing you're, you you prefer to theorize first and then act. Yeah. <laughs> but but on, on the other hand, I, I do go, you know, but both ways. Um, some of my favorite bouts that I've ever had is where it's like, it's real, well, not even bad, just friendly sparring. But we're not even going to a conclusion. But, you know, you have a s- sequence of actions and then I get hit. And my partner and I both stop. And we go, and I say, that was really cool. Tell me, let, let's go through that again and figure out what yeah. happened. So I, I, I kind of go back too. So that's where the action happened. And then I went to, I went to go back to the theory, but I, I never divorced the two. Sure. So um, you're primarily into, well, I mean, your school says chivalric martial arts. And I'm thinking that's, you're thinking mostly Lichtenau. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So what, to your mind, is the underlying theory of 
Shivarit Martial Arts. Oh my word. Okay, let me just preface. Underlining theory. Um, what? Okay. It, just, just for the listeners. To every action, there's an equal but opposite reaction. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Newton had that well, Let's bring in Newton then. <laughs> no, you can't have Newton. Um, okay, just, just, just to orient the listeners, I do send my guests a list of questions in advance so they can kind of you know prepare everything. That was not on the list, so no, I just, no, I just, I just threw a curveball at you to use some kind of sporting metaphor. I don't even know what sport that comes from. Okay, so based on your practice of Lifting hours, fancy. If you if you were going to kind of write out the theory, the underlying kind of tactical structure and theoretical concepts of Lifting hours are as a theoretician, where would you start? That's probably a fairer question. Where would you start? So. I really don't know. I hadn't thought about it this much. I mean, I can spout stuff that I've heard other people say, like the difference between Fiore and Lichtenauer is that Fiore, as far as his um, pedagogical method, is to start with the wrestling and build up from there, and Lichtenauer is with, with the long sword and build up from Ooh, there. I would heavily dispute both of those statements. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and you know what? I'm yeah. happy with that too. It's just, I'm, I told yeah. you, I could parrot things that I've heard other people say. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I'm just going to say, this is a really hard question. And I'm not yes. quite sure where you're getting at, but I think. I'm just curious. Um, late an hour that. So, so there's a difference, I guess, between the mnemonic versus which we don't mm-hmm. get much out of, but that's the only thing we really have from Luke Denauer as a master. Yeah. Um, all we have are his glosses and how other people have interpreted it. Um, so I don't think we can get all that much out of his underlying theory unless we go back and you know quote the prologue of it, which I, I had memorized at one point about young man. You know you you know. Love yeah. the art and women and what whatever it was, but um, I. So I don't know specifically what he and his followers would see as the underlying theory. What I would see as the underlying theory is basically it's all connected. That for every action with the longsword, you could probably go through and find a nearly identical, not necessarily um, physical, because you're talking about different weapons, but tactic, purpose, response. Started with the longsword, you're going to find the same thing in the polearm. You're going to find the same move in dagger. You're going to find the same move in sword and buckler. You're going to find the same move Mm -hmm. in wrestling. And so maybe it's just that it's all tied together it's all just the same stuff it's only the details okay so what assumptions do you think are being made as to um the the way the system is presented the way the material is presented you have the settle the mnemonic verses and you've got various techniques with longsword various techniques of wrestling and what have you um well for example, would you say that there is an assumption that 
your opponent will be moving first. In other words, most actions as described are described in a defensive context. Would you say that was true? No. Um, okay. Because I, I just think about the actions of breaking the, breaking the guard, so to speak, are actions okay. designed to provoke your opponent to move. Okay, sure. So... You know, when, you know, when you have all these, well, this is how you break this guard or that guard, it's mm -hmm. not a defensive action. It's designed to, or at least in my, again, in my opinion, um, to get your opponent to do something. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, so so you're, you're, it's not a defensive action as such, other than the fact that you're not going in there and just attacking, that your provocation still leaves you protected from your opponent's action. Yeah, so as, as you approach your opponent in guard, the, the thing you're doing, you either hit them with it or it constrains them to move in a predictable way that you can then exploit. Right. Which is exactly the same thing we do with the rapier, exactly the same thing we do with sword and buckler. And I would say that's that's what Fury calls tasting the guards. Okay. Um, okay. So... I'm... Okay, I should have prepared this better <laughs> because because <laughs> I've gone I've gone all no I've gone I've got I've gone all I've gone all excited about like you're a mathematician and you do this kind of this context sensitive language stuff non determinate it's like oh this is so cool oh we can totally apply this to fencing and so what I really want to do is go away for like six months and do some actual research on it and what have you. But instead, we're just going to do a podcast episode. Okay, because <laughs> um, okay, uh, it it seems that you have a... It's like an intellectual framework for looking at um, units of meaning, symbols or what have you, and organising them in particular ways, which... The which when a, when you apply that to historical fencing sources, you're possibly going to be. I mean, I'm putting words in your mouth, but you're perhaps seeing just seeing it from a different perspective than someone who doesn't have that kind of background and training, because the actions, like an individual motion on the part of your opponent, can be can be written down as a symbol. Right. Right. So you could. You could, if you had a symbol for the various symbols for the various actions, symbols for the various interactions between the opponents, you could basically write down a fencing match as a almost like a formula. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Not not only that, but so again, you, you just sparked something in my mind. The same thing is that yes. So if you took a fencing match and wrote down the symbols as a formula, then you would have an actual word in your context-sensitive language. This is something yeah. that actually can happen. But if you could also, you know, just write down a string of symbols, but they wouldn't necessarily be part of that context-sensitive language if it couldn't actually represent about. This reminds me of my card game, which is basically this is what we had to do to produce a card game for to represent Fiora's Art of Arms to represent how a sword fight works. That, okay, we had to take all the various ways of doing a mandrill fendente or a forehand uh, descending blow and 
just collapse that down into one thing. That is just Metro Defendente on this card, and this card is like this, right? Oh. And then the game designer, Samuel Raninen, he had to basically organize all these possible sort of interactions that could occur in the card game as it was played. And so he would sometimes bring me up saying, Guy, you're in a left side Fenestra and your opponent hits you, uh, attacks you with a reversal Sotano. What can you do? What, in other words, what is legal? And I'll say, hmm, okay, reversal, I would do this. And he's like, ah, okay. And he put that into his. So it, it strikes me that you're. Um, you can look at this kind of like a game designer would. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah. I, 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 yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, there's definitely an article there, Pamela. I think you should write it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always doing this. That's right. My, 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 my guests come on the show in all good faith, and uh, you know, and they get set homework. And, and it's now ridiculous. you're giving me homework. I know. I know. It's absolutely <laughs> ridiculous and outrageous. So, so let, let let me just sort of file that away in the back of my head for a minute and. Why don't you tell me about your school and why you founded it and what you specialize in and why? Okay. Um, Well, I founded it. My original purpose was basically just to train partners that could hang out in the park with me and play. Um, I was actually able to, there was a local church in my neighborhood that allowed me to use their basement. And, you know, I I, I got a few people coming. so it was ma- mainly I just wanted to train more people to play with me. And just being a very highly transient area, it seems like any time I got somebody that had a good time playing with, they moved. Um, but so on a, so that was my original intention of founding it. Um, it's kind of gone on a different branch since then. Okay. Um, we're on a whim. I submitted a class to our local public schools. It's called community learning. It used to be called adult ed. Um, you know, it's where, you know, as grown-ups, you can go, you can take guitar or painting or right. music appreciation. or. Um, but on their web, and I've taken lots of classes from them myself. And on their website, though, it says, if you have an idea for a class, let us know. So on a whim, I sent them in an outline for for a proposed, basically, sort of a lecture slash demo course on mm-hmm. historical fencing and where it comes from and the fact that, you know, this stuff did, you know, was a real thing that people actually did do this stuff. Anyway, so I submitted the outline of the course and the director got it, called me, called me in and he said, you've got to tell me about this stuff. <laughs> um, and he just, you know, he he, he was over the moon. Um, that he'd never guess- heard of it before. Um, a, a few months ago, he actually sent me, goodness knows how he found it, but it was um, a YouTube video. I suspect it was from WMAW where they reenacted the duel between a man and a woman. Mm. Were you there for that event? I was there for that one, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so he, he sends me this email and said, 
did they really do this? <laughs> Is this really historical? And I'm like, oh, yeah, you know. So anyway, so he was just kind of over. And that's where I've been now putting my energy is in this class where um, I present to people, show them a couple, you know, movie clips, especially the Princess Bride one, um, the, the clifftop scene. And I will spring into that from like, okay, you know, where Indigo Montoya was doing all this name dropping. Guess what? <laughs> These were real people. And then from there, then I, you know, go into the medieval and show them, you know, pretty pictures from medieval manuscripts. Um, talk about how we try and take the text and the picture and translate it into an actual action. Um, I, I, you know, some, some usually bring my husband with me to, to be my dummy because when I asked the um, Raul, the, the head of community learning, can I demonstrate this on students? He said, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that, that will take, you know, I'll, I'll have the slide up on the projector of here's the medieval manuscript. Here's what the text says. Here's how we're currently interpreting it. Um, and I'll bring in a bunch of my practice equipment showing them how we use, you know, they're not antique swords, but built like they were to handle they were. I bring in my, you know, a lot of my library where it's um, a lot of the, I love the fact that there's so many reproductions and transcripts that are out there now. So I can say, yeah, this, oh, yes. this is what a medieval manuscript looked like and let them thumb through it and watch their eyes get really big. And, you know, they always like, will you take a picture of me holding the sword? And, yeah. you know, so this is where I've gone. Um, this, this is really where I've been putting my energy in lately is just kind of introducing this to people that might not necessarily go out and practice it, but at sure. least be a little bit more aware and come away with right. going, gee, that was, that was really, really cool. Um, let me and, tell, tell a friend. Yeah, and, and a lot of people were, don't know this stuff exists, but as soon as they hear about it, they are so glad it exists. And yeah. many of those actually start practicing in one form or another mm -hmm. so that, that's that's really important i'm guessing also the um most of the time when they get suggestions for courses is please could we have a course on this in other words go find an instructor whereas you're saying well we could have a course on this and by the way here's the course plan and i'll teach it for you that's that's a much 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 easier sell than would you please find me a charango teacher yeah, and he's also tried to package it. So, so they put out a little booklet each semester of courses that, that are being offered. And he's tried mm -hmm. to package it with it. There's another class on medieval architecture. And, oh, uh, great. Yeah. Music. And so it's kind of, oh, look, these are all kind of listed together to try and, try and get some crossover for us as instructors. Excellent. <laughs> but um, but so I, it, it's a neat, I don't think there's other people doing this especially not in this area i think i'm the only one that's doing this as only a like almost a history class as opposed sure. to let, let's go out and hit each other <laughs> which is you a lot be, of fun yeah you you may be right i don't know of anybody else who is teaching a kind of like a night school class on historical fencing as a concept yeah that's that's really interesting um Okay, so why particularly chivalric martial arts? What what draws you to those? Um, well, you know, I'm a very idealistic person. Um, 
and just the whole concept of chivalry. Um, you know, I, I, I went, went through a whole bunch of ideas in my head about what I wanted to call my school, and I just felt like the idea, um, putting in chivalric in there, emphasized the fact that I wasn't trying to do something where it's like, hey, let's go out and win every tournament there is. It, mm -hmm. It's to me, the idea of chivalry is a lot of respect. Um, somehow in there, I just think even just the idea of education, be, being aware of things and other people, and that there's just a lot to unpack in, in the single word. Yeah. So I, I just felt like it was more on what my focus was, which, again, my original focus was just to find people to play with. And so I wanted to only attract people that liked the idea of chivalry because when you right. know if i'm asking strangers to come and play with me i want them to have at least a similar mindset to start sure. yeah because what i read from it is chivalric martial arts as opposed to the unknightly ones so for example fury would be chivalric but <clears throat> 133 sword and buckler is not a chivalric martial art um I wouldn't call any of the rapier systems chivalric because uh, they're sort of yeah. a bit too. So, so I, I guess I was trying to get you know medieval in there. Yeah. Because, um, but yeah, no, no. Um, certainly, like one thirty-three not being a knightly art, and that's not knights depicted. But on the other hand, I feel that at least in the modern usage of the word chivalry. Um, the fact that, hey, it's a priest and a scholar, <laughs> you know, ha hanging out together. Um, that, so I I'm, think I'm using chivalry more in the modern sense okay. and kind of fudging my history a little bit. <laughs> That's yeah, yeah, because, I mean, we could really go into that chivalry in the medieval times is not what we think of as chivalry now. There, there is a whole well, bunch. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I've, not, I've not, had, I've had Ellen the Yanniger on the show, and it's if I recall rightly, she, she, mentioned a little bit about how chivalry doesn't mean what we think it means anymore. Yeah, um, yeah. so, so uh, I guess, I'm, you know, the chivalric is, is in the modern sense. Okay, so what systems do you actually practice though? So, so mostly Lichtenauer, um, mm -hmm. that dabble a little bit in 133. Okay. And, you know, um, you know a little bit, so Lakushner, I guess, is is you know, could debate on whether that's leaked an hour or not. Um. <laughs> that's a really interesting question. Um, and we could get into some very geeky territory, which I think the listeners actually really like. So, okay, in your opinion. Well, I, I, I'm not sure I'm prepared to talk, talk to that. <laughs> well, I am. Talk down I, that. <laughs> so tell you what, so, so tell you what I, I, will, I will make a few assertions and you can tell me whether you agree with them in principle or not. Okay. Is that fair? Is that a fairer uh, question? Okay, all right. I would say that most of the stuff we see in the actual Lichtenarian longsword material is, if you like, the advanced course. It leaves out a lot of the really basic stuff like parrying and striking. Agreed. Okay. Okay. Um, well, what? sort of, because, I mean, strikes, you, you still have, I mean, it doesn't give you, like, super deep instructions on how to do an Oberhau or Unterhau but certainly we've got the master strikes. But I guess, yeah, because sure. then you're leaving off the basics. All right, I'll buy it. <laughs> okay. 
Um, then I would say that the basic fencing in, or the kind of the, the kind of the common fencing, the standard fencing, the the, the fencing one hundred and one, if you like, was probably in the fifteenth century Germany, or it's not even Germany back then, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, was probably taught through use of the messer. I don't know my history well enough to agree or disagree. Okay, okay then let, let me say why because I think that. I, I, um, so who are you saying is learning this Fencing 101? That, that's, that's my question. Um, because I was going to say if it's just, you know, you're guy on the street who's going to be hired to protect the king versus somebody from a noble house, for instance. True. Yes. Um, you know, so, so I, I, I would I would say it probably is going to I, I would buy it depending on who's doing the learning one on one. OK, there is a beautiful image uh, which I first came across in Mike Lode's book. Um, I will put it in the show notes. Uh, I've interviewed Mike Lodes on the show. We talked about the book quite a bit, but there's this fantastic image of the Emperor Maximilian being given a fencing lesson. And there he is, crossed with long swords with his training partner, with the fencing master standing there, basically instructing them. And on the floor in front of them is a pair of messers and steel gauntlets. And on the floor behind them is a pair of quarterstaffs. And the way I read that image is we begin the messer and we then progress through the longsword and then we go to the quarterstaff. And if you look at Every, literally every Mesa source I've ever come across includes things like waiting in a low guard on the left and when the strike comes in, you beat it out of the way and you hit somebody, which is there at the end of Capafaro, where he says it's a secure way to defend against any sort of blow. It's there at the beginning of Fiori's longsword material. It's there at the beginning of 133 where you're chambered low on the left when the sword comes in from right. above. So it's like there are these really fundamental, very common actions which you don't see in the Lichtenau Longsword material, but you do see it in all of the Messer sources, or pretty much all of the Messer sources, which gives me the impression that the Messer is the place you go to learn the basics. And yes, you can stick with that weapon and, and do really advanced, you know, fancy stuff with it, as we see in Lakushna. Mm -hmm. um, but pretty much everything that's in Lakushna is also in Lichtenau. Right. Yeah, right. You've got, <laughs> yeah, you've got the equivalents of your Zwerichaus and your Krumpaus and all, all of those things. They're all in there. Right. So my, my subjective image of how fencing was approached in the 15th century in Germany is you start with the Messer, you go on to the Longsword, and then maybe Quarterstaff if that's where you want to go. And of course, the longsword is the kind of the cool, sexy one, but the messer is something that everybody has, and and even Ma Maximilian's messer actually survives. So even even the emperor had and was using messers. So it's not just the common people, but the common people had them too. So that's like the the universal sidearm, mm -hmm. and then the longsword is sort of like the specialized stuff. Mm -hmm. So where, where I, would wrestling fit in? <clears throat> 
Um, I would say that wrestling is one of those fundamental practices that everyone was doing. And you probably learn wrestling before you even touch the masa. Okay. Because, I mean, that's what you teach kids. Like these days, you know, if someone has like a five-year-old who really wants to get into martial arts, I say take him to judo. Right. Because they're very unlikely to get hurt. They're very likely to learn lots of very useful skills, which later on can be adapted into things like, um, well, other other wrestling styles, other unarmed styles and what have you. And you're just much less likely to get badly injured than if you're punching and kicking. You know? <laughs> Uh, or whacking whacking people with sticks. I mean, that's really dangerous. Yeah, exactly. Um, so metal <laughs> sticks. Yeah. So so does that? Would you, would you say that was a reasonable proposition? Yeah, it's certainly reasonable. I, I really hadn't thought about it before. Um, I, okay. I have, you know, again going back to the, you know, math thing. It's like when, mm -hmm. when I do this lecture course, I explain that with these manuscripts. That what it is, we have the calculus manuscript here. Mm -hmm. We don't know how they taught the basic arithmetic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And even, you know, we mentioned my card game. The There's an expansion pack that you can get. Fury is like the basic style of the game, but there's an expansion pack you can get which gives your character Lickener. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Just because, to, to my mind, yeah. looking at it from perspective of the game the lithium now system is yeah it's the expansion pack it's the extra stuff it's the it's the advanced course if you like um so how do you how do you teach like the fundamentals of longsword um well just as far as like you know i, I assume you're meaning stepping outside of this lecture course but but teaching yeah, yeah sure um, you know, I start with, okay, um, footwork, first of all. I mean, footwork. How do you stand? How do you hold your body? How do you move through space? Um, and do a lot of, you know, games j just with that alone. How, how do you move your body physically through space? Um, being able to move quickly, smoothly with the stance. Imagine... You're top heavy with armor on, um, you know, I mean, tell them, you know, it's like what's easier to knock over is a, you know, hat rack or a coffee table. And it's like, right. be the coffee table, don't be the hat rack. Um, so footwork, definitely start. Then, of course, then with that, how do you stand? How do you hold your body is from there moving into the guards. Mm -hmm. Here's how you stand. Here's how you hold your body. But then with the guards, I kind of teach them both together with, with the master strikes, you know. That, okay. Okay, so if your opponent's in this guard, you might want to do this. And, you know, so, you know, that's where I start. And then from there, um, it's kind of a non-deterministic. <laughs> like I'll be, be thumbing through one of my books and go, oh, that's what, that's what I want to do today. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. No, because honestly, because if you're thinking of um, the now stuff as the advanced course, mm -hmm. it, it begs the question: What's the basic? What are the yeah, basics? Yeah, I don't think we know. Well, I, I don't think we know. Um, 
Ah, what's his name? Captain America. Um, um, Jake, Jake Norwood. Okay, yes. Um, <laughs> who's, again, been on the show. And when he was, when I was interviewing him, he said that what he's currently really trying, really interested in what he's trying to find out is what actually was this common fencing that everyone is talking about but no one's actually describing mm-hmm. in the medieval sources. So, yeah, it's... it's no, no one wrote a book saying, oh, this is the common fencing. Because who the hell would buy a book like that in period? Right. Right. Everyone wants well, the advanced you know, course. But books were expensive. You weren't going right. to you know, write a book on common fencing for the common person to buy because they couldn't buy it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this question is something I ask most of my guests. And I have an idea. I have an idea of what your answer might be, but what is the best idea you haven't acted on? Okay. Um, So haven't acted on versus kind of sort of acted on, but didn't follow through um, is taking this class that I do for the adult ed and doing it in the schools. Oh, I like that. And so in the school that I work at currently, I kind of, one day where I was, you know, so I'm a substitute teacher by day, um, that for one of the world history teachers, I was substituting for him. And I, on my little sub notes, I put there, when you get to the medieval section, I would love to do this class for, for your guys, if you're interested. And I never heard anything. And I, I, I just didn't have the guts to follow through. Um, but I, 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 that's so. I thought it was a really good idea, that I just haven't followed through on it. It is a brilliant idea because what is more likely to get kids into history than swords? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, really. Yeah. Okay. There'll be some kids for whom I don't know steam engines is better, and other kids for whom I don't know maybe it's the horses. But I think swords is a pretty, pretty sure hook. And, so and how so how would you how would you expand it into schools because there's only one of you right well well that's just it it would just be me um okay you know get going in and you know re- re- recruiting the teacher to be my practice dummy because again you can't always trust seventh graders to post <laughs> <laughs> to once you put a sword in their hand that's very um, true although but, in my experience i've done some stuff in in schools and you can't always trust the teachers either <laughs> this this is also true, <laughs> um, but I, I also think what would be nice about that too, though, is for the women and non-gendered students to see that hey, you know, you don't have to be a boy to be interested in swords or maths. Yes. Yeah. Well, see, that's just it. I, I've been in male-dominated fields my whole life. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, yeah. But so I, I, when I can influence other, you know, not non-male people to do this kind of thing, it, it, it's very emotionally satisfying. And yeah, it's it's the primary reason why I started the podcast because we have yeah. a problem in historical martial arts of basically not enough women are aware that 
this is something they can actually do. Because most of the people I know who have said, I had no idea this was even possible um, and now I'm doing it. Most of those are women, yeah. right? Um, and so the thing is, but I'm a bloke, so what can I actually really meaningfully do? And so, well, I can create a podcast with an interview format and have at least half of the guests be women. So it's really obvious to everyone who comes across the podcast that you don't have to be a boy to do this. Yeah. Right? It just it just struck me as like a as 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 a practical first step. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I've I, no idea. I've got no data as to whether it's doing any good or not. <laughs> whether it's actually <laughs> whether it's actually working as a as a you know get women into the art mm-hmm. outreach program at all. Um, but you know it's one of those things where even if it fails in its intended purpose it's still a worthwhile thing to do and so you know i i don't actually i don't expect it to be a particularly significant like step in that direction yeah but, but, it's but still also a step. not even just encouraging people to start it but you're by doing that you're encouraging people to stick with it so to speak because you know most of the faces of historical martial arts community are men Exactly. And, you know, um, get comments all, all the time about, uh, well, there should be more women instructors or whatever. At right. one point, I, I tried to lobby to be an instructor at an event and just got brushed off. And, you know, so. Really? Yeah. That's not good. <laughs> huh. Well, but that's what thing happens all, all the time. It's like events are doing really, really well when they have, like, I don't know, one in five of the instructors there are women. And most often those women are not teaching a practical class. Very often they're giving a lecture. Um, I, I'd say there's certainly exceptions to that. Uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there are, there are many examples of, of you know, women giving practical classes, but, but when, when you look at the lineup and you look at what they're actually being asked to teach... Yeah. The people who are most likely to be given the gym or the wrestling room or whatever, very often it's the boys because that's yeah. what boys do. Well, just just because they outnumber us. Except, well, in I'm... the general population, and yeah. and there are there are historical fencing clubs that have like fifty percent or better female membership, and you know my club in Helsinki when I was running it, we usually got about 35% women. Mm-hmm. But is one thing I noticed a long time ago is that they were tending to quit. They would get to a certain level and then they would quit. And I had absolutely no idea why. So I got the senior students together and I said, okay, so why are all the women quitting? And one of the senior students said, well, guy, look around the room. And it was all blokes. I was like, okay, so what do we do about that? And it was actually one of my students who suggested that wherever possible, demonstrate with a female student. Because when you, when you take a female student, when, when you take a student out of the class to demonstrate with them, you're basically raising them above the rest of the class. You're, you're, you're 
putting them on the spot, as it were, but also it's any martial artist knows that that's a, is a compliment being paid you in public by the instructor, right? And so, oh, okay. Well, I've been prioritizing the kind of the technical precision or whatever of the demonstration rather than its overall effect on like the students. And after about a year of doing that pretty consistently, we had more senior students who were women. Right? It, these things can can work up, at least up to a point. I, th I think there are, that by itself isn't going to do it. Likewise, the podcast by itself isn't going to do it. But if there are lots and lots and lots of little things all happening, that might add up together into a really meaningful change. What do you think? Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's you know well I, I learn so much from middle schoolers, um, and right now there, there's so much awareness among them about gender equity and so on, and, and mm -hmm. at that age they're still very idealistic, and that's good. So I just I would like to encourage them to, hey, you know, you're interested in this, then go for it, go do it, try it out. Yeah, and I guess the the thing thing is, if they're given a broad enough perspective, then even if the club closest to them that happens to be run by a bunch of burly blokes who aren't very nice, as may be the case, they won't assume that that's all of sorts. Right. And maybe go looking a bit further afield or start their own club or something like that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, I am vividly reminded of an event we were both at, I shan't say the name, where there was this sort of um, club leaders and what have you get together beforehand. And the issue of, you know, how do we, how do we get more women doing this and, you know, basically female representation and and there were as I recall I think two women there and as I recall you were one of them and as I recall nobody actually asked you your opinion <laughs> um, uh, or uh, basically the they women never asked, they never not only did they not ask me but I would get cut off right exactly exactly mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah yeah no no it's like well, well you know but but it was more of an attitude like well because at, at the time, I didn't even have my Academy of Chimel Martial Arts. It's like, well, you're not running a school. You know, I, I was teaching, you know, under somebody yeah, else. But, yeah, well, yeah. but you're not running a school. So you, you can't possibly be talking to this topic. <laughs> you know, yeah. 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 And honestly, I think, I think it was done in good faith. I, I do, too. I, I Again, it was um, done the, but their defense was the oh, okay, but you're not actually running a school, so right. yeah. Um, it reminds me of the time I was reading Carolyn Criado Perez's book, Invisible Women. Um, have you come across it? No, oh, it's a fantastic book. She's a data scientist and she goes through basically all of the oh, not all, but she goes through many, many examples of things that have been done horribly badly because the data that these things were based on was not disaggregated by sex. In other words, uh, for instance, um, cars which 
test get a five star safety rating with a male standard crash test dummy get maybe only a three star when you have a female model dummy right and yet women are driving these cars and sure enough more women are getting killed and injured in car crashes than men because the cars are designed to be safe for men drugs in medicine which are tested on male subjects even drugs which are only ever going to be taken by women are tested on male only subjects because men have more kind of stable hormone levels and what have you it's just easier to get clean data out of them but the drug is not supposed to work on them yeah. right it's like <laughs> ah right it drove me absolutely i mean i was reading that book i was in new zealand at the time and it was driving me absolutely up the wall and i was about halfway through it and it was at this event and we were sitting around after dinner or what have you and, you know it was like an event you know everyone's chatting and a friend of mine called Agate, who's a data scientist, a data scientist, that's the first thing, and a woman, and had actually read the whole book. When I brought up the subject of this book that it was getting me so cross, um, she was like, yeah, I've read it, da, 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 and, and she started talking about it, right? And one of the male students there basically politely and, and well, didn't mean anything by it, shushed her so that Guy could talk about the book that he wasn't qualified to actually comment on because not a data scientist and not a woman and also hadn't read the whole of yet. <laughs> it's like, ah, if ever you wanted a perfect example of why that book matters, that, yeah. <laughs> ah, and here I am, I get you on my show to talk and there's me like rabbit, 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 rabbit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you, you know what, I'm just, I'm actually just really enjoying the, the chance to chat with you and like this, you know, I feel like we've had pretty deep conversation that this is usually the kind of conversation I only get into, you know, after hours at an event, uh, after <laughs> a couple ciders. And <laughs> yeah, it's a little early in the morning for the ciders. bring out the plastic knives in a minute and just, <laughs> you know. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay, so my, my last question then. Somebody gives you a million dollars to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide. How would you okay. spend the money? Um scholarships to get people to go to events. Okay. Um, I, I think learning in person from people like you, people like Christian Tobler, Bill Grandy, um, you know, these people that have just been out there and studying this for 20 some years. And the internet's been wonderful. I think it actually kind of sparked the getting more and more people into the historical martial arts because we could now communicate with each other. But on the other hand, it's allowed people to live in their own little insulated bubbles. And just like you get in modern politics with the, oh, I did my research, <laughs> um, is that the, you get see all this stuff where people go on, well, I've been studying this for three years and I think that, and watching them get into arguments with people who've been doing it for 20. And I think this wouldn't take place as much if we could get people face-to-face -face mm. to talk about things, demonstrate the techniques, talk about in person. Well, let, let's freeze frame right here. We're, see where we're both at with, with the angle? Do you, do you see how this... And, and you can't do that on the internet. Um, so I, I so, think if we could get people face... So for me, personally, on my journey on historical martial arts, going to events was what made me, I, I don't know, um, the martial artist that, that I am. 
that I'm not just staying in my own little bubble and learning things just the people nearby me are not mm-hmm. learning. But, you know, I got to dabble a little bit in Fiore, you know, by, by going in and taking a class from somebody else. And I think if we could get people together to talk about things, to demonstrate things, to share knowledge. And it might be that, hey, this person who's been doing it for only three years did have a light bulb moment that the rest of us need to know about. You know, yeah, sure. That doesn't happen either. But the only way of knowing that is by actually that this is a physical art and to just sit here and type at each other, even people posting videos more and more, which I think is awesome, but still even that's still really hard. Video doesn't really show even still a complete picture. Um, This is why I, firstly, I don't do Facebook anymore. And secondly, I've, I've also, I don't, release videos out of context anymore. I do tons and tons of videos. Like mm-hmm. I put out probably a hundred videos in the last year. Right. But they're all, they're all put up with a private link. So they don't just go and then they are linked to, for example, within a blog post or to an email to my email list or to, um, like, like a, a book I wrote recently from medieval manuscript to modern practice, like, it's Fiore's longsword plays and you've got my transcription. So this is what I think he's actually saying in Italian, my translation. This is what I think he's saying in English. Then my explanation, this is how I think you actually do it. And then there's a video clip, mm-hmm. right? So that video clip is not just, here's what I think, how the sword thing does, boom, right? It's okay. From this transcription and this translation and this interpretation, this is how I think it looks in practice. Right? So it's, 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 part of that much larger context and if you just dump them out without all of that context it's it's yeah it's it's a lot better than nothing but it's still it's not a really good way of disseminating the depth of the art i don't think or certainly not for arguing yeah having a difference having you know having a good faith difference of opinion with someone um it's it's very difficult to have that sort of conversation over the internet when you can't sort of you can't do kind of real time adjustments mm-hmm. and you can't you can't see all all the bits of it and feel how it feels when you cross the swords and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, okay. So so you want to send people to that. So how would you select the people who get to go? Uh, okay, so actually, the way I would do it is completely random. Um, okay. The, well, people would have to apply. Yeah. Like, you know, ma- making the assumption that they would not go to the event if they didn't have the scholarship to do it. Okay. Um, so that would be my basic assumption. That's, again, trusting other people. to. Yeah. <laughs> but, sure. you know... Because then you would much more likely get in a new mix of people. So I'm not, so people that would, I would assume people that just go to events, the idea of this would be people that wouldn't go to an event otherwise. And again, it's just, I I figured this was a fantasy anyway. Um, (laughs) Sure. Okay. So, maybe, so, maybe, I'd put, maybe I'd put the money into advertising to get people to go to the event. But, but the idea is that I would want to promote 
the idea of, and, and actually not even um, tournament, I, I, non-tournament oriented events, you know, um, yeah. th things like WMAW that, yeah, might have a tournament component to it, but the idea is that it's more an exchange of ideas. Okay. Yeah, maybe, maybe, yeah. Because so, I was going to ask, how do you select which events are eligible for scholarships? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Again, this was fantasy, right? Yeah, um, sure. WMAW has unlimited number of people, but that, that wouldn't work either. No. Um, maybe, you know, here's an idea they just thought of right now. And again, because it's completely fantasy mode. Um, it's going to be the equivalent of the Willy Wonka golden ticket. Is that okay. it is an event by invitation only and automatically like event regulars would kind of get invited, but then I would send out random golden tickets throughout the world. And if you got a golden ticket, you would get to come to Pamela Muir's martial arts factory. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, that's a great yeah, idea. Yeah. So, because, you know, we've got a million pounds. You, you never said and this had to be a practical. No, option. I didn't. No, no. And so it's really just an exercise. It's going to be, you know, Pamela Muir's, you know, factory, and you get a golden. There will be people that have standing invitations, people whose books line my bookshelves. <laughs> um, and then. You, you know, if you get a golden ticket, you, you get to go and hang out with these people and learn in person. That's a great idea. Yeah. And it's funny, most people who I ask that question of will come up with something along the lines of getting people who don't get to go to events normally to go to events. Okay. Right? Either, either something about making an event move around the place so that people can find it locally or or like scholarships for getting people to the events or subsidizing the event itself to make the event cheaper or for to provide accommodation at events or one of the one brilliant suggestion was child care at events that is brilliant I've, i have forgotten which of my guests mentioned the child care thing i'll put it in the show notes because that was exactly as brilliant yeah right because I mean, I've once or twice seen seen students with babies at events, but I, you know, people always say, "Guy, you should bring your kids." It's like my kids have no interest in hanging around at a boring old sword fighting convention. They don't. They're not into that. So, so it would either be a crap weekend for them and a less good one for me because I'm spending time, sort of, basically feeling guilty about my children being miserable and, you know, being sort of distracted from what I'm supposed to be doing there or I could do it separately like I go to this event which they're not interested in and do that and then some other weekend I think somewhere else but just having childcare at events would be oh that yes. make it a lot easier for a lot of people to absolutely to yeah no I, I was very lucky you know my, my kids are now grown and flown both my sons mm -hmm. are married and <laughs> Aww. But, but when I first started going to events you know they, they were school age and you know Luckily, I had a very supportive husband who's like, this means a lot to you, go. <laughs> yeah, see, that's what husbands are supposed to be like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm very lucky. He, he, he goes off and he, he travels do, doing um, half marathons. All right, okay. But, so so it, it's a fair trade. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I would definitely take the sword fighting event over having to do a half marathon. I mean... <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> That's a long way to go without a bicycle. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, well, thank you very much for joining me today, Pamela. It's been lovely talking to you, and I'm going to have to have a lot more thinking time to come back to you about the math stuff. Okay, well, well again, it's just nice, nice to see you, and, you know, I hope to see you at a real event in person sometime. I might need a scholarship. <laughs> give, give me that million pounds and you've got it. <laughs> Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Pamela. You can find the episode show notes at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast. While you're there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I shall also mention that the new Sword School website is up and running and we have worked out most of the early bugs, still haven't quite sorted out the connection to the wiki just yet. Don't worry, the wiki is not gone forever. We are just fiddling with the tech stuff, or rather highly paid professionals are fiddling with the tech stuff. But the site itself is looking glorious, and I'll be very interested to know what you think of it. So please do have a look at swordschool.com and drop me a line to let me know. Of course, that kind of work, as well as this podcast, is made possible in part by my lovely patrons on Patreon. And I'd like to thank them for their kind support of this show and all my other works. It lets me know that you care about the show and the work that I do, and I really do appreciate it. You can join us there on patreon.com for behind-the-scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. Thanks as always to Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents that I have put into the, the episodes. It was originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project, and I have retasked it for this because it sounds brilliant. So thanks, Andrew. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Neil Melville, author of Two-Handed Sword, History, Design and Use. And he's also an avid collector of antique swords, and we go into some detail about the very first sword he ever bought and some absolutely stunning swords in his collection. I am extremely jealous. I actually do know where he lives, and I am planning a raid. No, I'm, that, <clears throat> no, I'm not. I'll edit that bit out. I came across Neil's work because a fellow podcast guest, Paul Wagner, recommended that I look into it. And I'm very glad I did. So thanks, Paul, for putting me on to Neil. And thanks, Neil, for showing up next week for the next episode of The Sword Guy. You do not want to miss this. So subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really does help. So thanks for listening. And I will see you next week. Mm-hmm.